So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the first riot of the Luddites. Then on Tuesday, we unearthed the mad coincidence of the day two different Dennis the Menaces made their comic strip debuts. On Wednesday, the day the Spanish conquered the last Maya kingdom. Thursday was the day Colonel Sanders sued KFC. And on Friday, we recall how Vincent van Gogh's sister-in-law made his name. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here. Thank you very much for downloading episode three. It's called I Was a Teenage Rockstar. Uh, obviously, I wasn't when I was a teenager. I looked like Millhouse. But I went to Bristol last week to meet a guy called Connor McGloin, who actually was a teenage rock star. It's OK if you haven't heard of him. It's very unlikely you'll have heard of his band, Kinesis. Uh, But it doesn't matter, because I think you're going to really enjoy the interview with him anyway. It's kind of about uh, the 90s music scene and what it's like being so young when you signed your record deal that your mum had to do it for you. But actually, it's, it's really about arrogance and hubris and the lessons you learn from your mistakes. Uh, It's a really great interview, I think. He's a really interesting guy. So do listen out for that. I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, Before we get going, though, just want to say big thanks to Darcy and to John, uh, two men who have both bought us beer this week. Thank you for that. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, Also to everyone who's been using the hashtag ModernMan on Twitter. Rick's done that. Uh, He's tweeted, I love the Modern Man podcast. It's like a men's magazine without gratuitous naked ladies. Uh, I think, Rick, as much as anything, that's to do with the limitations of the audio form. Uh, But thank you. Uh, Right, time for the show. In this episode, you are going to learn what Omarashi is. It doesn't come with wasabi sauce. Uh, You'll hear the inoffensive, pleasantly melodic pop band Travis labelled as musical poison. And you'll discover why one man wants 33 grand to generate a giant pile of ball bags. Let's go! On this week's Modern Man... To pick up my VIP wristband, I gave away my GCSE results. A teenage dream so hard to beat when you sign a record deal whilst you're still at school. Instead of digits, I had like, you know those foam fingers that people take to sports events? Giant baseball hands. Yeah, I had giant baseball hands. And solving your sex queries is a piece of piss for Alex Fox. But first, Ollie Peart is here with the zeitgeist. Ollie, what is top of the trends this week? Christmas. No, it's far too early for no, Christmas. No, I'll tell you why. No, it is far too early for Christmas. No, come on. What do you associate with Christmas? Sprouts, mince pies, granddads. But since 2007, of course, mm. the John Lewis adverts. Ah, I don't mind starting with the John Lewis TV ad because that is a big discussion point of the week. I don't even think of that as Christmas. That is part of the build-up to Christmas. That's interesting because I watch it and think, Christmas, early. yeah, really, yeah. I get, I get, yeah, and I saw. So you strike it. me someone as I can totally imagine you seven years old in your little pajamas, running down the stairs, excited about what's <laughs> under the tree. But that's interesting because back then, the John Lewis Christmas ad tradition was not a thing. It's no, absolutely, only, only been going since two thousand and seven. Before then, I don't think John Lewis had advertised on TV at all, or maybe they'd done one campaign. That's so arrogant, isn't it? That's like we don't even need to advertise. People just turn up and buy overpriced goods. And, don't don't uh, just cynically <laughs> unpick a brand because it, you think no, no, it no. makes you feel cool. That's true. But have we, you? We all s- like John Lewis, Ollie. <laughs> yeah, but have you seen the advert? I haven't seen this year's advert. No, it came out last week. Can I just say the reason I haven't seen it yet? The reason I haven't seen it yet is I'm going to wait until it naturally falls onto my screen, internet or telly. I'm not going to seek it out. I think that's absurd. Essentially, all it is, is typically a kid that makes mates with something that's like real weird. It's been like a penguin, 
It's been a snowman. I think one of the first ones was actually a bear and a hare. This you're, time, you're confusing a lot of John Lewis ads here. Whatever. They're all the fucking same, Ollie. The they are the same. Kid loves thing, no. gives present, no. love ensues. The snowman one didn't have any children in it at all. It was about snowmen falling in love with each other. And then the bear and the hare was a bear and a hare. There were no children in that either. Whatever. It's the same thing. It's just the same storyline spunked out a year on year with different characters. Spunked I'm out. sorry that I'm sure, ruining sure this magical all dream. Year animating bear and hare would really appreciate that. Uh, Do you know what? Brilliantly animated. Fantastic use of uh, 3D animation combined with stop motion animation. I right. appreciate the effort that went into the creation and production of that thing, mm. but just regurgitated every year in a different format that's cost millions and millions of pounds. Mm. But it's this girl, she makes mates with a man on the moon because she's got this really incredible telescope that for some reason can see up to the moon a man in a house who would die, incidentally, because he can't breathe. But anyway, mm. it's like Christmas and magic and that kind of stuff. Falls in love with him. He's really miserable because he lives on the moon and he ain't got no mates and stuff. And then she goes out and thinks, well, oh, you know, I better get him a present. So gets him a present. Ties some balloons on it. I was trying to figure out how she can get it up there. Like throwing stuff originally. Ties some balloons to it. Sends it up. He gets a present. All happy. He It's a telescope. She brought him a telescope. Interesting. And then he looks I back, sees her. I say interesting because last year it was the penguin, wasn't it? Yeah. And the penguin, although expensive for a soft toy penguin, was, I'm guessing, more affordable than a telescope will be if people rush out to the shops and try and duplicate the present from the ad. But what it did do, this is interesting, is uh, in the ad, it's a full moon in the ad. And incidentally, this Christmas will be the first full moon Christmas Day since 1977. Good fact. Was you holding back a yawn? Um. <laughs> you looked like you were holding back a yawn. I find that quite interesting. I, I audibly did an intake of breath so that I could prepare myself to be staggered. Uh, and in the end, I thought, that's, that's all right. Yeah, that's a fact. Well. Where do you stand then on the idea of people seeking out the ads, as you have done, so that they have a commentary on what is trending? When, when really it's just the thing that's selling us stuff. I, well, look, I think a lot of people are like you. They see it as sort of a mark toward the countdown, the build-up to Christmas, if you like. Mm. They see, see it as a marker. They're like, oh, it's Christmas, I'm getting excited, mm. and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it represents nothing. I think there's an exception that proves the rule, though. Go on. Holidays are coming. Holidays, Holidays are, are coming. See? Yeah, okay, I'm see? into that. See, now you're I'm smiling. In, yes. You're thinking of Christmas. What an that evil a, corporation. <laughs> that is an advert. It's an advert just the same, Ollie. It's just the John Lewis one's more recent. What else is trending this week, Ollie Pitt? Ollie, if someone came up to you and uh, nicked your phone, what would you do? Someone once on the way back from a Michael Jackson concert when I was 14 asked me for some change and I naively took out my whole wallet and put it in the palm of my hand whilst I was counting up how much change I had to give them. <laughs> he just looked down at my palm, looked up at my face, and just took it and ran away. Well, uh, tennis player, Serena Williams. Heard of her. That happened to her this week. And she... she what, what did? Her phone got nicked. Right. She was Well, she was sat down at a restaurant. Yeah. And this bloke sort of like came up, and he had his jacket, and then he sort of like went... Oh. And he just nicked her phone off yeah. a chair, walks yeah. out. Serena Williams got up. And got the phone. Which well, is a professional sportswoman. Yeah, I know, but, you know, you don't know who these people are. Like, yeah, the mean, guy could have had a gun or a knife mm. on him. I mean, I am like five foot one and a half. Yeah. I'm not actually, that, I'm not that short, but I'm quite short. So I don't stand much of a chance against most people. I think if me and you were to have a fight, I would lose. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I think you've brilliantly set up a future episode of the show. We should try it, like <laughs> some, some kind of wrestling or something, yeah. But the news reported it and they were like, Serena Williams, she got up, ran after this guy and like tackled into the ground. And I thought, oh, wow, it's amazing. And then I saw a post and it, and it had the video. It said, video has emerged of that thing. And I mm. thought, great, well, I've got to watch this. I've got to see a guy get taken out by Serena Williams. 
It's very tame. She sat there. She basically noticed it. She got up, slowly sort of... Oh, really? ...jogged out, approached the man and sort of went, oh, terribly sorry. Don't hear any of the audio, but that's what I imagine she said. I don't but think it looked she like says that. terribly sorry. <laughs> and then, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing Serena Williams would say. But the way in which it was done, or the way the, the, the video showed it, it just seemed so casual and calm and chilled out, whereas the news was just like, yes, yeah, fucking took his legs out and kicked him in the face. So it's kind of... watching Australian coverage predominantly. Well, there's lots of just shit on the internet, isn't there? Ollie, what else have you got for us this week? Let's talk fashion. Oh. Would you wear a backpack that looked like a scrotum? (laughs) Well, of all the words I thought you'd say. Yes. uh, No, not unless I was being paid to do that. What what do you mean looks like a scrotum? How realistically? Very realistic. I mean, I saw it and I thought, that is just a giant scrotum on someone's back. This is a trend. Or is this just someone attention grabbing on Facebook? No, wait. There's a man. He's trying to raise funding, $33,000 to be precise, to produce the Scroton Tote. (laughs) He so far, as of today, reached $11,401. Isn't a small amount of money. Be flogging them at around $10,20. Don't all. Just even uh, using that word when you're talking about a Scroton feels wrong. But interestingly, if you are going to make a bag, why not base it on one of the best bags in the world? People would be pointing at other men walking down the street with their ball bags, being like, oh, God, is he still not shaving his? Oh, God, do you reckon the bag's got hair on it? I haven't... Oh. 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 <laughs> there seems to be a bit of a fixation on balls recently as well. There's a, a weird trend that's been going on in the last sort of month or so called nutscaping. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. You basically find a beautiful scenic view. Oh, I have seen... Yes, I've seen a guy who's... You can see the hair from his scrotum dangling down at the top of the picture yeah. with a beautiful view. Behind. Exactly. Anyway. And before I let you go, Ollie, uh, we've got some news, which is uh, only three weeks into this show, you've been snapped up to replace Jeremy Clarkson. Well, well, no, well, no not, basically qu- not it, it? quite, but I am going to be on TV. Yeah, you're going to be on Dave in the Top Gear slot, sort of, because they show a lot of Top Gear. Sort of, yes. What, what's the show? The show's called The Indestructibles. So it's a bunch of us, it's four of us, and we basically... Four have lads. Four la- lads. Banter. Lads. Home of witty banter, yeah. Dave. Uh-huh. Uh, and we have to make these stunts and then we invite some professional action sports athletes to come along and do them as well do you know what a zorb ball is i do well they do they're giant balls giant inflatable balls that you can get inside yeah and Um, roll down a hill yeah and we got a mini one so it sort of goes over your head and we sent a guy called gary connery who is a world famous stuntman who was actually the queen in the olympic opening ceremony wow yeah so he jumped in and did all that parachuting thing when he was the queen we put him in a zorb ball attached him to a zip line and sent him down the zip line about 30 miles an hour and then released him to try and replicate uh, the bouncing bombs from <gasps> world war Two. so he was bouncing on his head uh, in a big inflatable plastic ball right well if i want to watch that uk tv player right now that's the right yeah you can watch it. that's the one with yeah. our very own ollie peer and then people can feel ownership can't they they can be like i knew that guy when he wasn't even famous yeah exactly when he wasn't on dave on sundays at five o'clock precisely i knew him when he was just talking to ollie man about stuff yeah balls this show is free to download but it is not free to produce we're all doing this currently for nothing if you're enjoying the show and you would like to buy us a beer to thank us just head to modernman.co.uk and click beer money the average cost of a pint of beer in britain is three pounds 31 about five us dollars using my secure website you can choose to buy us a beer once or more regularly If you value independent podcasts like this one and you can afford it, 
then why not sign up to buy us just one beer a month in return for this magnificent show? Uh, and if we ever meet, the next one's on me. Head to modernman.co.uk and click Beer Money. Thanks. Now, what did you want to be when you were 12 years old? I bet it wasn't an accountant. Uh, I think I was keen on actor at that stage, but any kind of Paul Newman-style face-on-a-bottle fame would have been okay for me. Uh, My mate Steve, though, he wanted to be in a band, and we used to spend our GCSE geography classes doodling the logo for a made-up band called Mayonnaise all over our pencil cases. Um, But this was the 90s. We were listening to Ash and Cast and Shed 7. Uh, There was a feeling that teenagers... Teenagers really could pick up a guitar and just get signed to a record label, even if you weren't that good. Well, whilst we were doodling, one boy who really did it was Connor McGloin. Here's his story. I grew up in the northwest of England. When I was about nine or ten years old, Britpop emerged. Definitely, maybe was released by Oasis. And suddenly, Manchester became the epicenter I think of, uh, of at least for UK if not the world musically and I remember feeling uh, when I was 11 I asked for a guitar from my mum and I was pretty sure as sure as an 11 year old could be that I would be a rock star and then you what you you learn how to play wild thing and chopsticks or what oh you're not a million miles off you learn to play all the Green Day songs uh-huh. because they've only got three chords yes and all the Nirvana songs because they're just power chords and Wonderwall and you're good to go. I mean, it's the old cliche, learn three chords and start a band. I think when you're that young, I wasn't scared of anything. I didn't know how ridiculous it would be that a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old would be in a band and go and play gigs because you're not really aware of, of how the world works. And this is pre-internet, basically, isn't it? So It is. How do you put your band together age 13? <clears throat> All the local kids who were into guitars and stuff hung around at a local practice studio either trying to form bands or just playing pool or just trying to escape a little bit from Bolton. I'd grown up in Bolton, which isn't renowned for being a creative mecca. The name of the band was um, Kinesis. Did you have a shit name before that? I'm still not sure that that isn't a shit name. (laughs) (laughs) I was being polite. (laughs) Did you have a worse name before that? No, I don't think we did. We booked a concert before we had a name. Uh And our singer came up with Kinesis. Um, It's not bad. It's okay. It's It's okay. okay. I thought everybody did call us Kinesis for a while. I I think, you know, like connotations with Genesis. It's not a good thing. What did you sound like? What was your musical sound? Coming from Britain, we were... Listening to Radiohead, what else? We were into Pixies. I, I was a guitar player, a lead guitar player. I think we were into noise, you know. But then we we had this other side of us where we were we were pretty obsessed, and I think obsessed is is the correct word with um, the Manic Street Preachers. We genuinely thought when we were fourteen or fifteen that if we sang about political subjects and engaged with an audience, that we would change people's minds. We had played two or three concerts and we decided that we were going to go to a recording studio and record a demo. And we went away and recorded five songs in a day, maybe two days. And what they were? Yep. The sort of a lead song was called The Flowers Are Dead, which was a metaphor 
for the rise of the far right in Europe. Uh-huh. We went away and we printed about 300 copies of this demo on CD. CDRs at the time, this like brand new technology. You were um, printing off CDs thinking, what, I'll send this around record labels? Yeah, we did. And we, we wrote huge handwritten letters to accompany all these CDs. And we sent it to everybody we could think of. All the Radio 1 DJs. Who was your target? Peel must have been the target. Lamac was the one we wanted. Um, I think we were so young, we probably weren't weren't old enough to stay up for John Peel. So I think we we would write letters saying, I think, what was the line? Something like, with the antidote to the poison that is Travis to the (laughs) British music industry. Stuff like that, you know, try try to capture his attention. So we sent this CD out to lots of people. We got a call at home. I did on my home phone because it's pre-mobile phone, I think, or mobiles had just come out. And it was the producer of Steve Lamac's show. And I'd just got him from school. So I was in year 11. I probably just turned 16, something like that. And Lamac's producer rang up and said, we're, we're going to play your single. And we're like, we, you know, it's not a single, it's just a demo. He said, well, we're going to play it anyway. We had band practice that night. And we, <laughs> one of the members was 17, had a car. And we drove off. And before we went to rehearse, we, we had the car stereo up on full. And Lamac played this this song, which had been recorded in this little recording studio just outside Bolton. I remember it being like a big moment. Of course. We were overwhelmed that, you know, we could go away. We'd been a band for, what, six months. We'd recorded these five songs and Steve Lamac was here playing it. But you've already told us you were arrogant, you were confident. You had that swagger to get that far. Mm. Was a part of you when you heard that song on Steve Lamac thinking, right, this time next year we'll be headlining Reading? We definitely didn't see that as like reaching a peak. And What I, was the end point in your head? The end, oh, the end point was, I mean, selling 20 million copies of an album. And the weeks that followed, we started to get replies from the other hundreds of CDs we sent out. People who perhaps had ignored it when it first arrived were looking through their piles of demo tapes and said, oh, hang on, I heard these guys on the evening session. We picked up a press officer. They got in touch with you mm. before you had a record deal yeah. and said, I'll be your press officer. Uh, yep, absolutely. Doesn't that come at a cost? No, uh, they were they would uh, pro bono, I guess. They, wow. They, yeah, um, on the understanding that they would be employed by a record label should we get signed. We quickly picked up a radio plugger um, who said, wow, well, you got on the Mac, this is a good start, we'll get you on other shows. We picked up a, an agent who would book us gigs. So pretty soon afterwards, we had this we had this little team around us. We got invited to Reading Festival as VIP guests and all, all this kind of thing. Wow! And I, re- I remember you were backstage at Reading. Backstage at Reading, age sixteen. Yeah, and it, just on your GCSEs. It was the day I picked up my results. So I picked up my results on the Thursday morning, drove straight to Reading, and they asked for some ID to pick up my badge. I didn't have any idea. I had my GCSE results. I sh- gave my GCSE results to the guy and said, "Keep them." And <laughs> said, so to, to pick up my VIP wristband, I gave away my GCSE results. That pretty much says it all. It, yeah, there we go. There's a, there's a metaphor for the whole thing. Oh, this all sounds very impressive. I want to reinforce <laughs> the idea that I was a complete knobhead. Yeah. Okay? Like, you know, I, I'm aware that this probably resulted in me being an, an utter dick to be but, around. Okay, so here's the thing. Okay. Would it have been possible for you to have got where you got if you weren't a dick? Certainly an element of arrogance and being cocksure 
led us to that point. So I think our, our fifth or sixth ever concert was down in London, like in the school holidays. Where? Uh, the Dublin Castle mm-hmm. in Camden. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a wake-up call, actually, because we'd read... Now, you've got to remember, again, pre-internet, we'd read about the Dublin Castle mm-hmm. and the Enemy and, mm-hmm. and Melody Maker, and in our minds, it was this legendary venue. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. You'd, you'd bump into rock stars you yeah, know yeah, um, yeah. and we got there and it was a dingy little back room of yeah. a pub and there were four people came to watch us uh-huh. four people and we'd driven it was what was it 600 mile round trip we just thought that was how it would be you know for a few we played gigs like this every so often and then it'd be all right we'd be playing stadiums in two years so you would know. you drink Jack Daniels and Coke, I think. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I would. Americans listening to this will find that astonishing. I mean, because you have to be 21 to drink in the US and you yes. have to show a passport to get it. Yeah. Um, Brits in a band. Basically, it doesn't matter, 14, 15. Yeah, Jack Daniels and Coke. I mean, that's probably still the case, isn't it? It's, it's sort of extraordinary. I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like lots of arrogant people, I think, um, and people who are attention seekers, I was pretty insecure. And I used to drink before going on stage because I was pretty insecure still. But you see, you had your manager, you had your your press officer, uh, you had these people who were gathering around you to promote you in the music industry. And none of them were saying, okay, so he's a bit of a knob, but he's 15 and I need to be responsible for them. They were saying, I'll get you a Jack Daniels and Coke. No, I, th- I think that makes it sound more... I think we were pretty... We we would get ourselves... You know, we were responsible for ourselves. Yeah. Even when we were 15 or 16. Yeah, but, yeah, but you looked at from an adult perspective, you weren't. If if you were yeah, Jedward, sure. people would be saying, that's an abuse of children. Mm. Because you were rock stars. Oh, yeah, that's what they do. I mean, it's very easy yeah, in this course. kind of post-Winehouse yeah, world to look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. But that is the case, isn't it? it, it at the time, the industry was set up that, oh, yeah, they're, well, they're teenagers, they're in a rock band, they'll get wasted. Uh, it's true. There were grown-ups around you. Yes, there were. Who thought this is part of the mystique. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, possibly so. Yeah, possibly so. But you're making me think about that for the first time. Yeah, so, I can you see know. that. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so... So, I go back to... After, after the summer, I go back to sixth form for three weeks and then drop out. Things started to heat up a little bit and a number of different record companies were interested Jive Records were interested, who I think were a part of BMG. Yeah, Home um, of the Backstreet Boys. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mercury Records. Yeah, a bit um, cooler. Uh, we eventually signed with um, a record label called Independiente, co-owned by Sony, so a, a pretty big deal. And they had Travis. We si- ended up <laughs> signing to the same record label as Travis. Did you tell them you were the anti-Travis? I'm pretty sure we told our A&R person we were, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we, we signed a record. Well, uh, I say we, my mum signed the record deal for me because I was 18 yet. Um, How did, why? Legally? Legally, yeah, legally. Uh, the other lads who were at least one year, two years in one case, older than me, could sign it themselves. By the time we signed this deal, I was, I'd turned 17. So actually, from that summer, it must have taken at least six months to get the record deal. In the meantime, we started touring properly mm. after I dropped out of sixth form. Um supporting bands we're starting to get lots of press um and the manic street preachers asked us to open for them at brixton academy no and i remember that was a, that was a big deal of course it was a big deal that's like, yeah it's a bit like sort of spielberg saying to jj abrams isn't it come and direct this film you know, you're so good at pastiching me, just just do my next film for me. Absolutely. And because the the press had latched... I mean, we were obsessed with the Manics, and the press had talked us up a lot as being the new Manics. 
we weren't arrogant, quite arrogant enough to see it as them handing the baton onto us. But, but we, nearly. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, um, um, but actually, presumably, the Manics got to choose who supported yeah, them. Yeah, they did. They did. So why? You know, they obviously didn't feel threatened by you. They obviously felt flattered. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, if imitation is for sincerest form of flattery I, that must have been the case i remember my family came down for that so they came from bolton academy. to brixton academy and, and this is before you you haven't had an album out no we haven't had supporting a, the manic street Preachers yeah, of brixton think, academy think, you're how old it was 10 days before i was 18 right okay i think so still not legally allowed to drink yeah my mum and dad were disappointed i think that i dropped out of sixth form understandably now looking back at it as a 30 year old i can understand why they were probably horrified with that decision mm. Um, but I remember they came to see us support the Manics at Brixton, and I think at that point they, they understood. Now I might be completely wrong. Maybe if you chatted to my parents, they'd say you know they were fine with us from the start. But I remember I think when they saw us play to five thousand people supporting this huge band, that, you know my dad had their albums. You know, I think they understood. Okay, it's paying off. You know, this decision to leave education at sixteen is paying off. The record label signed us for a big chunk of money at the time again this is just before I mean we're talking six months maybe before Napster came along and took all the money out of the music industry how much are we talking we're talking about about quarter of a million pounds they signed you for quarter of a million pounds I, th- I, th- I think now my memory might be playing I maybe I've exaggerated that but it's I've a six older. figure sum somewhere around it's a around six there. figure sum yeah lots of it went to pay that little team that we'd built up. Lots of it went to the tax man, lots of it went to manager who takes 20%, lots of it went to a lawyer who, who negotiated this. But we were left with a big chunk of money that paid as a wage for a couple of years, I think. Um, you know, I moved out of home when I was 17 and moved into my own flat. So you're a professional rock star before your first album comes out? Yeah. I imagine they tried to package you in a way that would appeal more to teenagers. Yeah, I, I think so. And so did you, um, what I'm trying to say is, did you have groupies? Genuinely, genuinely, no. I, I think the opportunity would have been there. In, f- in fact, the opportunity was there. I mean, the opportunity was there to partake in drugs, if we want. We, pl- we met plenty of people in bands who were spaced out on all sorts of substances. And the opportunity was there if we wanted to, you know, partake in groupies every night. We probably could have. But I'm, I'm not having you on when I say we were genuinely more high-minded than that. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We were in a band because, and this sounds awfully naive now, we were in a band because we were going to change the world. We were going to open people's eyes to the vast injustices. We weren't there because we wanted to, to sleep around. Mm. And we, I mean, Russell Brand would say the same thing. There's a line, isn't there? I mean, if, if, mm. if people throw themselves at you, it's difficult as a 17-year-old man to say no, I imagine. Yeah, but we, we did. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not having you on. No, no, I, I, no. I, I, like, uh, I'm not saying this to try and preserve some modesty. Yeah. Um, we didn't. We were. We were self-contained. Last gang in town. We were like, if the Guardian was a rock band. <laughs> That's what we were. Now you can probably guess where this story is going. Mm. The record comes out. The the album comes out. Um, Handshakes of bullets. Receives great reviews. Um, what are we talking? Eight, we're out ta- of ten? eight out of ten in the enemy. We're really? talking Kerrang saying we are no enemy saying we are possibly the most important band of our generation. Fuck off! I mean, like, really, really. I mean, I know they said that every week. But uh, yeah, still, to of be course, one but of really bands. hyping it up. Yeah, really, really hyping it up. Yeah, Kerrang giving it four out of five. But it just it, when it came out, it sold 
hardly anything, hardly anything compared to the money that had been invested. We were good enough to sell 10,000 albums and we should have done that on an independent record label. And that was our level. You'd overhyped yourself. Yeah, well, absolutely. We, you only got to where you got through the arrogance and swagger. And we completely overhyped ourselves. And that you shot yourself in the foot. If we had not overhyped it, though, we never would have been in that position. It's, it's, a, it's, a, strange, it's a strange one, isn't it? I mean, yeah. there, are, there are two prisms that this can be seen through, I think. Either the band was a terrible failure. Okay, I, I understand this um, as a prism through which it can be viewed because we were hyped up. People, you know, saw us as like this hugely important band, perhaps, you know, like uh, carrying on in the vein of a clash, the manics, and then the public were interested. The album wasn't good enough and we got what we deserved and were dropped immediately after one album. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that it was more successful than it should have ever been. We were four 16 or 17 year old boys from Bolton. We started a band in our bedrooms and we ended up touring with Linkin Park and Muse and Biffy Clyro and playing Reading Festival and going to Japan and that it got bigger than it ever had the right to be. And I think probably the truth lies somewhere between them. The record label quite understandably said, this isn't going to work. Um, we're going to release you from this record deal, as they had every right to. And we were faced with this decision. We um, we had about enough money left to pay ourselves probably for a year. So we could carry on being in a band for a year. We made the decision that we were going to record a second album and split up on the day that it was released. It's like a some incredibly symbolic act of what I don't know. And that's what we did. So we locked ourselves away in a practice room and we bought our own recording gear and we recorded a second album um, all by ourselves, just cooped up, put it out and sp- split up on that day without doing any touring as like a, a last sign. This is, this is what we were. It lasted for four years. Here's the end. When the band split up, I had three years without drinking afterwards, immediately. Decided to have three years without drinking, Mm. not a drop, because I was, at the age of 19, turning 20, borderline alcoholic, I think. Mm. I was, yeah, I was in a great state health-wise. And we were aware that if we split up now, we could have second chapters to our lives. There are examples in rock music of people who didn't stop and eventually had Mm. some sort of massive success. You know, I'm thinking about Elbow, for mm. example. Yeah, of course. Or Elbow rehearsed in the room next to us while we were recording. Well, there you um, go. Yeah. Uh, and essentially didn't become the massive band they are now until they've been going for about 15 years. No. Did you have to quash a feeling that you might be wrong? Did you have to quash yeah. a suspicion that it could still happen? Of course. When the band got dropped, it was simultaneously the worst and the best thing that ever happened. The worst thing because suddenly this dream appeared to be over. But the best thing because it took us down a peg or two, ego-wise. And it's the most important thing, I think, that ever happened to me because of that. So, Mm. you stepped away, you went to Oxford University, you got a degree in politics, philosophy and economics, and you've become a secondary school teacher living in Bristol. Yeah. Your students now must, all the time, I mean, it's a popular trope, 
say that what they'd like to be mm. is a pop star or a rock star or someone in the public eye or follow their musical passion. What do you say to them? No, I'm, I'm torn here. Okay, I'm torn. Because being of a band and getting that far, and if I, if I look at it through my optimist, optimistic prism, it taught me that with the right mix of hard work, exceptionally hard work, and ingenuity, some enterprise, all sorts of things are possible. But after the band, I went back to this comprehensive school in Bolton and I worked exceptionally hard to um, to read and to, and to learn. And, and really, I'd realised what an idiot I was. And I worked very hard and applied to Oxford and it paid off again. Um, I channeled all that hard work we put into the band into academic studies and that worked, worked out. So the message I give to the students is that anything can happen if you if you really do work and you um, are prepared to give up a lot in terms of time and energy and also you're willing to do your research about how you become successful in that field yeah anything is possible but i think the greatest possibilities are are to to look out look out for people other than yourself it took me a long time to learn that connor thanks very much for joining me thank you for coming all the way to bristol it's been a pleasure Confiscating difference Only when we say You can be you. Uh, Before we find out what your challenge is for next month, let's pause to thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist this month, BBC Maestro. Yes, BBC Maestro is a subscription-based streaming platform. It's got loads of amazing online courses that you can take part in which are taught by some really incredible names yeah like alan moore julia donaldson it's an incredible repository of online video lessons from people who really know what they're talking about um i'm really excited because bill lawrence is on there do you know who that is i don't should i know this he's well no it's a geeky thing to know who he is but he's a he's a comedy writer Mm. and he's done an online course for bbc maestro in writing comedy for television he's the guy behind scrubs and ted lasso the thing about these courses is they're long like he's it's not just guy talks to camera for half an hour and shares some tips that you'd get if you went to go and see them speaking at any literary event he has done a bespoke 21 lesson four and a half hour course on how to write comedy for tv how to pitch how to work with actors how to find your voice i mean they're proper deep dives the one that really stood out for me though is um Brian Cox teaching acting. And mm. I, I don't think I've ever said this to you, Ollie. But I remind you of Brian Cox? You, yours... I do have that steely determination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's say yeah. But I have always wanted to learn how to act properly. I don't necessarily want to be an actor, but I just quite like the idea of um, knowing how to act. And the thing about Brian Cox is, I mean, what a name to be teaching you something like yeah. acting. Well, there'd be transferable skills, wouldn't there? Even if you have no intention of being an actor, you know, the the things that he's going to be talking about in that course, how to work with other actors, how to interpret your character, how to learn your lines, all of that stuff might be relevant for whatever you do for a job. Yeah, I was thinking more of explaining to my other half that I did put the clothes away. She just thinks that I didn't, but then I could act the way that I did. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, maybe you will make that pivot, Ollie. You know, there's there's always roles for the back half of the calf in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. You're saying I'd be <laughs> a literal ass. Anyway, uh, if this appeals to you as it should, 
Then use the code MAN to get 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription at bbcmaestro.com. Yes, go to bbcmaestro.com and use the code M-A-N-N to get your 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription, which gives you access to every single BBC Maestro course. Let the greatest be your teacher with BBC Maestro. It's time for our weekly voyage into the foxhole. Joining me as ever with your sex questions, it's the lovely Alex Fox. Hello. Hello, my darling. I've heard you've been in an ambulance this week. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I've, I've, been, a, I've been a poorly fox. What I, happened? I, uh, I got on a bus. I had a lovely day um, doing some work for Jurex, talking about terrifying statistics pertaining to young people and STIs. You were sex educating. Um, and then what happened? And then I, I hopped on the W3 bus home yeah. and suddenly became extremely itchy. No, not there. Uh, on my hands. And by the time I got home, I could hardly open my front door because I'd got instead of instead of digits, I had like you know those foam fingers that people take to sports events. Giant baseball hands. Yeah, I had giant baseball hands. So I called an ambulance, and uh, they came over and, and were wonderful and deflated me in various ways. How could you um, call an ambulance? I guess a touchscreen phone might have been difficult. I actually phoned a friend, uh, and she came round, opened the door, took That's one terrifying. look at me, and, and said, "Yeah, we we need to call nine 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 because you look like a bullfrog." So what did um, they think it was? Uh, they thought it was some kind of mild anaphylaxis. Oh. It didn't feel mild. I was more worried at that point, though, that I had three members of the emergency services in my lounge uh, right next to a massive bag of dildos, which I was <laughs> praying that they hadn't spotted. Yeah, if, they ha- if they did see them, they were extremely polite about them. There was, there, there was dust and dicks everywhere. Well, your questions have been uh, rolling in like a big bag of dicks. And this one's from a man who chooses to remain anonymous, and he says... Hey Alex, I have a question for the foxhole. I am a young man in a long-term relationship with a very healthy sex life with just one issue. I have a pee fetish. The bigger issue, she doesn't. She can't stand it. I really want to practice these things with her, but I know we never will because of her repulsiveness towards it. What should I do? I have never practiced my fetish with anyone and I really want to. Okay, right. Well, hello, Anon. So you're into water sports, golden showers, I'm presuming, or uh, the official name for them is Eurolagnia, uh, a passion for urination. You don't actually specify in your question the nature of your fetish. You haven't said whether you want to be peed on or whether you want to pee on your partner. And I imagine that that may have an influence on on how willing your partner is to participate in your fetish. Yes, I'd assume as well she'd be more likely to indulge you if it was a question of peeing on you. I don't know. She might get stage fright. Some right. people really, some people feel quite nervous about the idea of draining their spuds all over their partner. For some people as well, a pee fetish doesn't actually mean that they want to wee or be weed upon, but they get off on the idea of, of holding on to urine. Oh, so, no, really? Yeah, there's an official term for it. I believe it comes from the Japanese. It's called omorashi, mm-hmm. with a practice of being excited by holding on to urine until the urge to pee becomes actually quite urgent and desperate. But I mean, I mean, forgive me for taking this back to my GCSE biology class, but I'm pretty sure they, they taught us that in the male reproductive system, it's, it's a track, isn't it? it? It can either go, you know, on the Metropolitan Line or the Jubilee Line. I'm, I'm trying to choose things that don't have associations with colours. I have no idea why you're talking about trains right now, I'll be honest. Hang be, on. Because you can, you can, I thought I was right in saying you can either urinate or you can ejaculate, basically. 
So if, if you've got an erection, then surely you can't urinate. And therefore, if you're urinating for sexual excitement, but you're not getting an erection, then are you really sexually excited? It's possible to be sexually excited without getting an erection. For some people, the suppression of an erection, not allowing themselves to become erect, is part of the excitement. It's not as simple as, I'm hard, therefore I'm turned on. You can just about It is make as simple yourself. as that for me. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly how simple it is. As someone who doesn't own a phallus, yeah. it's not that simple for me. But yeah. um, you can pee if you've got an erection. Have you never tried to pee through morning wood? You have to kind of force it down, or so I'm told. You've ju- exactly, you just said you don't have a phallus. Yeah, I can relate well, to this a, a situation a you're describing. It is a bit painful and you do have to wait a while. Yeah, I know this because a friend told me a wonderful story about him trying to do that very thing, trying to visit the WC first thing in the, in the AM uh, when he had a hard on and forcing it down but then being a bit sleepy and letting go accidentally and basically it sprung back up yeah. and he weed in his own eye which might which actually be which this man be, would love yeah this, this, this could, could be, the, be the way that this guy solves his problem yeah. being on himself this is this kind of fetish Anything to do, anything to do with the scatological or you know urination or uh, excretion, it's considered by mo- by a lot of people to be so gross that admitting to be turned on on by it would be something to be ashamed of potentially or yeah. ostensibly embarrassed by. So if it came up in a group of people, perhaps, or she presumed her boyfriend might be joking, the expected response from her would be to be grossed out. Whereas if they had a conversation where he said perhaps more seriously and more gently, look. This is really something I'm into that I'd like to explore with you. Maybe within that context, she'd be a little bit more open-minded. Fair enough. But he is going to have to be prepared for the, the fact that she might not be into it Well, at all. exactly. And let's assume that that is what's happened. They've had that conversation. She says she's not interested. He tells us she says she's repelled by it. Uh, in that situation, actually, what do you advise a man to do who, who wants to stay in a monogamous relationship and actually appears to love this woman in every other way? What is his outlet then? I mean, he pees all the time. Does he just have to make the most out of that? Well, obviously, he might want to investigate porn to do with this particular fetish. That might prove to be an outlet for him. Although, if he says he's never practiced this fetish, but he's already into it, I imagine he's, he's consuming already, that kind of yes. porn already. Yeah. Um, it depends and it, you see, but that's an issue as well, isn't it? Like, he, you know, his partner might not like the idea that he's watching pee porn. No, um, and some but of in that a sense, porn can be really extreme as well. Exactly. It involves humiliation and like people being used as human toilets and stuff. Um, one but but thing in a sense, he might feel, well, that's your fault. That's your fault because you're not into it. Uh, you left me with no choice. I want to stay with you. I don't want to cheat on you. I'm into it. What else am I supposed to do? I don't think we should be pointing fingers as to any, any I'm doing fetish it, Alex. being. I'm pointing the finger. That he might genuinely find pornography to be a helpful outlet for him. But then again, you could argue that perhaps it will just encourage that fetish, uh, which could become problematic in his in his relationship if he feels like this is a box that isn't being ticked for him. I mean, it depends on how open their relationship is really there are many people in the world who uh, have wonderful great satisfying relationships as this gent has told us that that his is with his girlfriend but there's one thing that they 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 really feel that they need to be satisfied within their lives that they can't get with their partner Uh, and in that case sometimes people discuss it between them and agree that one of them will go to seek that from somebody else so perhaps he might consider visiting a specialist dominatrix so that he can explore his fetish and I think he also needs to be prepared for the idea that what he's seen in pornography and Mm. fantasizes about being fantastic for him 
he might actually find that he feels differently about that in real life. That's a common experience. Well, I mean, even just sex in a bathroom, you know, before you get to the peeing stage, because presumably they're going to want to be somewhere waterproof. Uh, even that can, I imagine, feel rather less glamorous in real life than it does, uh, you know, on the silver screen of the internet. I mean, you've got cold taps lying around, haven't you? You've got hard surfaces. If his girlfriend was actually, if it did turn out that after a more in-depth, serious conversation, that she was open-minded about maybe starting to try things in this direction, one thing I've heard from other folks who have this fetish that, that as a kind of start of a ten, if you will, a start of a number twos, is that they just get their partner to go to the loo and leave the door open and they might stand somewhere down the hall so right. that they can hear it and there's still that element of privacy. Yeah. But that can be, for want of a better word, a gateway into that fetish. Or some people try it in the shower because then if they're not enjoying themselves, it's washed away straight away and it feels a bit more clean. Well, Alex, it has been another enlightening trip down the foxhole. It has indeed. And if people have a question for me, any type of query, musing, confusion or wondering, then they can just head on over to modernman.co.uk and click on the feedback form and you can send all of your wonderings my way. Also on our website, you can see links to all of Ollie's Zeitgeist Trends of the Week. You can find links to the music of Kinesis, if my chat with Connor has triggered an interest in that. Uh, you can leave us some feedback, or you can buy us a beer. It's all at modernman.co.uk. Uh, whilst you're there, click the links to subscribe to the show on Pocket Casts or TuneIn, so you can get the latest episodes delivered straight to your smartphone. Or if you use Apple, it's itunes.com slash man, uh, where if you'd be so kind kind as to leave us a review. Uh, I'd be very grateful. Miranda has done that. She's rated us five stars. She says it's a great show and all the content is just as interesting to women as to men. Hooray. That was always my hope. Thank you. Uh, But that is it for this week. My producer is Mr. Matt Hill. My lovely theme music is by Django Django from their self-titled debut album. And this is the song that I'm obsessed with at the moment. It is by Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. It's called SOB and it came out this week on Stax Records. Go and buy it now. Goodbye. See you next Tuesday. Now for 17 years I've been going in there. 17 more will bury me. And somebody please just tie me down. Ask somebody to give me a gun.